The duel emerged in the middle of the 16th century and had been very popular during the first half of the 17th. Although the practice waned during the Commonwealth, it was taken up again with renewed vigour when the Cavaliers returned to England after Charles II's restoration in 1660. After all, they saw no reason for not picking up where they had left off. As ardent proponents of gallantry, the prospect of a murder carried out in the name of love and honour was most appealing. Even the women got in on it occasionally. There were a number of reasons why you might decide to fight a duel. The other man might be your rival for the attentions of your girlfriend, or alternatively, the other man might have run off with a young woman in your family. Duels could be fought to resolve gambling debts or to avenge public insults, or they might operate as an extension of political disagreements. If a man gave you the lie, that is, he accused you of inventing some untruth, this was also a fairly common, acceptable reason to demand satisfaction through the duel. Your character had been maligned after all, and one's reputation was everything. Once the challenge was sent, and the other man had accepted, the meeting place was agreed upon. This should be somewhere private and secluded, where there was no chance of being interrupted. Hyde Park was a very popular place to fight. You chose your second, a man you knew well and trusted, and you met your enemy at a lonely hour. Then you fought. Pistol duels had not yet gained popularity in 17th century London, so you would most likely fight with your rapier or longsword until first blood was drawn, or until the death, if you had a more vicious character. Sometimes your seconds would fight too, so the effect was one of a small battle. Afterwards, if your enemy was dying or dead, you would need to flee abroad to escape arrest. France was a popular choice for this self-imposed exile, and a lot of duelists from the 17th century spent many comfortable years there before returning to England, where it was hoped they would be pardoned. If you found yourself challenged to a duel, then this is what you could realistically fear if you accepted, death or exile. Of course, you didn't have to accept the challenge, but then your enemy would be quick to post up your name in public, making it known that you are too cowardly to fight. And what would that do for your reputation? If you held some sort of position of authority, a captain in the army, for example, you needed to maintain a renown for bravery, otherwise how could you possibly command your men? Perhaps unsurprisingly then, over half of all duels fought during the long 18th century involved at least one military officer. Dueling, for most of the Restoration period, consistently skirted disrepute. Although it was murder to kill another man, Charles II was particularly bad at pursuing those who fought duels. He publicly expressed his dislike for the practice, and often endeavoured to prevent them by locking up the two rivals before the rumoured duel could take place, yet at the same time he was quick to hand out pardons to duelists, perhaps because many of them were his friends and allies. In consequence, the duel, as a cultural practice, was able to continue for many years with relatively little interruption. The implicit message was that men could and should express themselves through acts of violence. Of course, this all assumes that you and your enemy are of a similar social class. If you have a quarrel with a man of a lower social status than you, well, all bets are off. 
Hi, I'm Mari McNeil, and this is Gin and Gossip, Theatre History Between the Acts. What does all this talk about violence have to do with the stage? Well, today we're going to begin looking into the history of the, some of the more unsavoury figures who hung around the theatre, attempting to rub shoulders with actors and actresses, or to at least interfere with their lives and careers. Today this means telling the story of Charles, the fourth Baron Moon, and the trouble he found himself in at the end of the 17th century. Lord Moon was born in London in 1677 to the third Baron Moon and his wife Philippa. He did not have a happy upbringing. When he was only six months old, his father died, having been run through the stomach in a duel over a card game. His title was passed to his infant son. The new young Baron was raised by his mother, who has been described as a termagant and was known for quarrelling with shopkeepers. The small family had very little money. Moon's father had left his estate practically bankrupt from his gambling habits. And because of this, Moon didn't receive the education that other boys of his social class might expect. He grew up quite wild. In 1691, aged 14, Moon married Charlotte Orby, the granddaughter of the Earl of Macclesfield. This was quite young for a marriage, even for an aristocratic couple during the 17th century but it was quite a good match, socially speaking. It likely came about because her family was rich, and Moon's mother and stepfather hoped that she would provide them with some much-needed cash. Not surprisingly, it was not a particularly happy union, made more so by the fact that the promised money never emerged. The couple separated shortly after the wedding, and the diarist, John Evelyn, recorded the following year that the young man had become exceedingly dissolute. With his newfound freedom, Moon quickly earned a reputation for enjoying the bugbears of Restoration London. Drinking, dancing, dice, and, excuse me, dames. A young aristocrat let loose in London, winning and losing great sums of money regularly and enmeshing himself in myriad amorous encounters, was bound to find trouble before too long. In December 1692, he fought a duel with Lord Kennedy, a man of almost 40 who was really old enough to have known better. There were no fatalities, or indeed serious injuries, but both men were summoned before the king. William III, middle-aged, dour, and unsympathetic to the passions that drove Englishmen to duel, condemned them in the most severe tones. They were instructed not to repeat the incident under any circumstances, and were advised to behave in a way more becoming to aristocrats. A few days later, having apparently paid very little heed to the king's stern telling off, Lord Moon participated in his first murder. Let's take a break from the sordid activities of the upper classes for a while and talk about a completely different man, the actor William Mountfort, who dazzled London audiences for over a decade in the 1680s and 1690s. In many ways, Mountfort was Moon's polar opposite. About ten years older than the young Baron and raised in a middle-class family, he had come to London from Staffordshire in his mid-teens, 
and quickly found his niche on the London stage, working as an actor at the Duke's Company at the Dorset Garden Theatre. By the mid-1680s, he was regularly performing leading roles, usually as devastatingly handsome heroes, although he did do a good tragic turn, as well as dabbling in fop roles. If commentators raised a cynical eye at Lord Moon's dissolute lifestyle, they had nothing but the highest praise for Manford. He was attractive, a gifted singer and dancer, and he was good-humoured to boot. Popular with the upper-class playgoers who patronised the theatre, he cemented many lasting friendships. For a short time, he lived with the Lord Chancellor in his London home, entertaining the guests who came to dine with comical celebrity impressions. Mountford even experimented in writing plays himself, although his efforts were not the most memorable, it's true. For a brief period of theatrical history, he was a clear favourite among the audiences who were captivated by his looks, his charm, and his clear natural talent for performing on the stage. In 1686, when he was in his early 20s, Mountford married Susanna Percival, a fascinating, vivacious young actress who excelled in comedy roles. She would become known for her breeches parts, showing off her comely legs in dynamic comic turns. Again, unlike Moon, Manford's marriage seems to have been a happy one. The young couple lived in St Giles, around Tottenham Court Road, a party district in the 17th century, and they had several children together. Two of them sadly died in infancy, but the eldest, a girl also named Susanna, lived to adulthood. William Mountfort served briefly in the army in the late 1680s, fighting on behalf of William III. He soon afterwards returned to the London stage, a war hero, to the great satisfaction of the London audiences who had been awaiting his return. And this is where we find him at the end of 1692. He was in his late 20s with a strong theatrical career. He was a war hero. He was good-looking, and he had wealthy, influential friends all over the city. His wife was equally talented and successful, and their family was growing. Susanna was five months pregnant with their fourth child. Of course it was all going to go wrong. With a setup like that, how could it not? Here is the point at which our two stories meet. It was the evening of the 9th of December, 1692. At this time, Lord Moon was friends with a young army officer named Captain Hill, who was not much older than himself. Hill was deeply infatuated with Anne Bracegirdle, the star actress at the Drury Lane Theatre. Charming and popular, it was very fashionable to be in love with Anne Bracegirdle in the early 1690s. In her early career, she often played tragic heroines for the audiences to sigh over, acting opposite William Mountfort. Hill and Moon drank wine in the street and waited for Bracegirdle to make her way home from the theatre. They eventually found her in a nearby tavern with her mother. Hill's manner of wooing was to abduct her and strike her mother with his sword. Her friends managed to fight him off, Embrace Gerd or listened to their apology but would not accept it and demanded that they leave her alone. Hill and Moon then began patrolling the streets, still drinking, and when the Night Watch approached them to inquire why their swords were unsheathed, Moon gave this answer. I am a peer of England, touch me if you dare. Hill decided that the reason for Bracegirdle's rebuff 
must be because she was having an affair with her co-star, William Mountford. Why else would anyone reject this prince of a man? They decided to stake out his lodgings, and soon enough they encountered him, returning home from the theatre. When he appeared, Moon and Hill greeted him. While Moon pretended to clasp Mountford in a drunken embrace, Hill stabbed him in the stomach. At this time, Captain Hill was 19 years old. Lord Moon was just 15. The wound was not instantly fatal. Mountford was taken from the street back to his home, where he lived long enough to draw up his will. He died the following day and was buried at St Clement's Church in Westminster, near to our old friend Nathaniel Lee. A thousand people attended his funeral, which was orchestrated by Henry Purcell. Hill, the murderer, immediately fled to France, but Moon was arrested, charged with murder, and spent several weeks in a comfortable apartment at the Tower of London. His trial was a fairly speedy one, taking place at the end of January 1693 in the House of Lords. Moon pled not guilty, and gave a brief statement claiming that he had not borne Mountford any animosity, and pointing out that he had willingly surrendered himself to the magistrates. Would a guilty man do such a thing? The trial itself was quite short, as they often were, although many witnesses were called, most of whom attested to the debauchery that Moon and Hill were enjoying that night. Anne Bracegirdle herself gave evidence, recalling the horror of Captain Hill's attempt to pull her into his carriage and his attack on her mother. Moon, in charge of his representation, examined the witnesses with some inelegance, but then remember he was only 15 years old. In the end, his lack of expertise didn't matter. Moon was acquitted of murder by 69 votes for him versus 14 against him. Perhaps the verdict was inevitable. According to rumour, one peer remarked afterwards, privately, that William Mountfort was only an actor, and that all actors were rogues. Was Moon guilty? Witnesses were in general agreement of the facts. It was Hill who held the sword, and Hill who made the thrust. But the question was, was Moon aware of his friend's plan before the attack? And did he assist in the murder by holding Mountford back so that Hill could stab him? His peers in the House of Lords were clearly willing to decide that he was not guilty. And although Moon's peers may have brought their own biases to the courtroom with them, the Attorney General did at least endeavour to remind them that they should not be lenient to Moon on account of his age or social class. From this perspective then, the verdict is the right one. Moon was at best an accessory to the murder, and it was Hill who escaped persecution. Mountfort's wife Susanna appealed the verdict, but was prevented from carrying it any further, because her father had recently been called up in forgery charges, a capital offence in the 17th century. By agreeing to drop her own appeal, the charges against her father were also dropped. At this point, a young widow and heavily pregnant, what else could she have really done? No further action was taken against Moon, and Susanna Mountfort gave birth to her fourth child, another girl, in April 1693, four months after her husband's death. It is easy to see why Lord Moon was found not guilty. 
reviewing the transcript of the trial, published for public consumption at the request of the House of Lords, by the way, it is clear that Moon did not stab the actor himself. And after all, he was only 15, how much responsibility can we assign to him? Perhaps it is a case of simply wanting him to be guilty. Moon had acted like a grown man since he was in his early teens, and he had spent the hours prior to the attack waving his sword around in the streets and threatening everyone around him. And he was complicit in the attack, by holding Mountford down in a feigned embrace. What makes it worse is that he does not appear to have shown any remorse for what had happened. And then, of course, there is that awful peer, who favoured leniency because all actors are rogues. In modern Britain, a less forgiving jury could probably have found Moon guilty. For a while, the muse of Mountford's murder occupied the public imagination. He was, after all, a beloved figure among London playgoers. The murder was the subject of some bad poetry, and it appeared, very loosely disguised, as a plot point at the end of a novel called The Player's Tragedy, published a little over a month after the murder in January 1693. The narrative is almost identical to real life, but the anonymous author provided all the characters with Italian names. The novel was not a very good one, and it didn't reach a second edition. Eventually, the murder ceased to be a regular topic of conversation. After all, there was other theatrical gossip for Londoners to attend to. Occasionally, the presence of Anne Bracegirdle in a play was enough to inspire people to attend the theatre, and remember the scandal that had been linked to her in the winter of 1692. But otherwise, the affair was rarely mentioned. What of the other characters in this sad drama? Captain Hill, the murderer, remained abroad for several years, but eventually returned to England. He was killed in a tavern brawl in London, a fate that was no better than he deserved. After her husband's death, Susanna Mountford's life was a mixed bag. She returned to the stage shortly after the birth of her daughter and continued to maintain her reputation as an excellent actress. Two years later, she married another actor, John Verbruggen, a talented drunk. She died in childbirth in 1703. Anne Bracegirdle, the unwilling object of Hill's passion, left the stage for a while after Mountford's murder. Was it fear of gossip that drove her away, or was it grief? She eventually returned to the stage a month after Moon's trial, and continued to capture the hearts of her colleagues and her audiences. She eventually retired, rich and single, in 1707, and lived another 41 years after that, dying in 1748 at the age of 85. By that time, she was one of the last remaining actors of her generation. Moon is a slightly different story. We could end our tale here, but Moon's personal history after his trial was just as colourful as his life before it, and it bears telling. Following his acquittal, Moon did what many young men do when trying to escape from a problem. He joined the army. He was one of many who enlisted at the turn of the 18th century following William III's efforts to deliver long-term military reform. These men were seduced by the bevy of literature and journalism, that championed the gentleman officer as a true man of honour, a man whose bravery and patriotism entitled him to the highest respect. His military record appears to have been very short, however, and he was soon back in London and up to his old tricks. 
In the absence of formal condemnation for his behaviour, Moon's violent activity persisted throughout the 1690s. In 1694, he attacked the MP, Francis Scoble, and cudgelled a journalist. Three years later, in 1697, he fought another duel with a fellow officer, and murdered yet another in a tavern brawl. In 1699, he was acquitted of the murder of Richard Coote, yet another army officer, in yet another tavern brawl. He was 22 years old. William III, who had given him a bad-tempered telling off years earlier for fighting Lord Kennedy, was inclined to be lenient this time. Moon would be a valuable addition to the House of Lords, if he could be persuaded to take the King's side. Sure enough, in 1700, Moon entered the House of Lords, and consistently voted in favour of Whig concerns, supporting William III. It is easy to be cynical, but perhaps this was just what Moon needed. He was 23 years old, and perhaps becoming weary of the cycle of libertine frolics which had characterised his teens and early twenties. Indeed, a career in politics seems to have suited his naturally belligerent character. During the first decade of the 18th century, nothing ties him to violent activity, as his attention was heavily preoccupied with other affairs. He worked briefly as an ambassador abroad, and spent a lot of time in the House of Lords. His personal life was also fraught. Since 1701, he had been engaging in a long series of legal battles with the Duke of Hamilton, who claimed a right to an estate that Moon felt ought to belong to his family. The courts did not go his way, however. Frustrated by his impending financial losses, Moon returned to a reliable course of action. He drunkenly issued a duel to Hamilton in November of 1712. Hamilton was in his mid-fifties, and not in the best of health, suffering from that most 18th century of afflictions, gout. Nevertheless, he was a busy and active politician, strongly favouring causes sympathetic to Queen Anne's interests, who, unlike William III before her, was a Tory. This made Hamilton Moon's rival in the House of Lords, and Hamilton had recently won several triumphs within the Tory administration. He had a large family, and an enormous social circle in London. He included the author Jonathan Swift among his many friends. Nevertheless, when Moon issued his challenge to Hamilton, Hamilton accepted, and the men arranged a time and place to fight. The evening beforehand, Moon was nervous. After all, it had been over 12 years since his last foray into libertine violence. He had a friend with him to help alleviate his fears, however, which he did by getting very drunk on Spanish wine. Moon and Hamilton met early the following morning in Hyde Park. They were accompanied by their two seconds, both army officers. Hamilton's second was his cousin, and Moon's was an Irishman, George McCartney, who was later made into a public hate figure for his involvement in the duel. At the call, Moon, Hamilton and their seconds fought. The fight was quick and brutal. Years later, one of their contemporaries wrote that the two men fought with so violent an animosity that, neglecting the rules of art, they seemed to run on one another, as if they tried who should kill first. Moon was killed almost instantly, but before he died, was just able to fatally stab Hamilton through the shoulder. Hamilton died a few minutes later. 
their seconds managed to escape with only minor injuries and sensibly fled abroad for a few years, creeping back to England only when they felt that it was safe to do so. The outpouring of grief at the news of Hamilton's death was enormous. Beloved by the Tory press, the newspapers were quick to insist that the entire affair had been a plot against the Queen and her party. Others took a more scientific approach, analysing the coroner's report of the deaths in order to prove that Moon couldn't possibly have killed Hamilton, and it was actually his villainous second who had struck a cowardly blow. Most of the responses, however, were simple laments for the loss of a great politician. One pamphlet that recounted the full story of the duel between Moon and Hamilton devoted two pages to praise Hamilton's life and character, describing him as a prince of unquestionable bravery who would be universally lamented. The description of Moon's life, on the other hand, is told in one brief, tactful and telling sentence. Lord Moon is also very much lamented as being the last male of his family. Thanks for listening to Gin and Gossip. Please rate and review the show on iTunes and make sure to check out ginandgossip.wordpress.com for more information on today's episode. Have a great evening. <laughs>